Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting from the studios of WLCB from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel. I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice, but I've also been an entrepreneur myself and have started or helped start at least nine different businesses. And I have made a lot of mistakes. I've not only made mistakes, but I've seen plenty of mistakes. And my passion is to share what I've learned and to find other experts and entrepreneurs to also share their advice and insight. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions and suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, you've got an issue or a challenge, maybe you wanna be a guest or know someone who would be a great guest or just wanna share a great resource you found, be sure to email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. And now, without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest for today. Joining me by phone today is Meji Kengla, and she's going to share with us the story of how she built her company, which is called Data Products, LLC. She is the founder and principal data strategist at her company. It's a woman and minority-led company that provides consulting and R&D services. She is one smart cookie. She has a PhD in applied mathematics. And prior to founding her company, she was a senior data scientist at Ernst & Young and also held senior positions at Groupon and a company called Talk3. She's currently also an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago, where she's taught a variety of courses ranging from analytical statistics to advanced data mining and machine learning methodologies. Boy, as a musician and a, and a writer and a lawyer, I don't know what any of that really means, but I'm sure she's going to fill us in. She says really her expertise is in developing and using novel mathematical algorithms, data mining, machine learning, and statistical analysis to derive actionable insights from big data. Wow. Meti, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Well, thank you, Doris, for having me. I really am excited to be on. Well, I'm delighted to have you and very grateful you're willing to join us and tell our listeners a little bit about your journey. So I think the first place to start naturally is to talk about your company. I gave a little introduction, but I think it might be worth digging in a little deeper to talk about what Data Products does. Oh, thank you, yes. So uh, Data Products is a small startup firm, a boutique firm. We have been in existence for about five years ongoing. And it is, as we say, we are a data science 
consultancy, right? So we work with other firms and organizations in basically helping them leverage your data to optimize their business operations. And that could range the gamut in terms of uh, how that can be applied depending on the business, depending on the data, and any other factors that could affect it. Okay. Um, I think probably more of this will make sense as we talk about some of the typical kinds of projects you work on. So, you know, maybe that's a a good segue actually to talk about that is without revealing any client confidences, and you can even do it on a no-name basis, maybe share with listeners just a, a sampling of some of the kinds of projects you've worked on. Oh, yeah. So... They could be as simple as, um, well, not simple in quotations, I'd say, data strategy. (laughs) So a firm that has information or data or records and they need to start planning or would like to start planning, a startup that would like to start planning uh, in terms of how to manage their data IP, because data is is this intellectual property in this days, in this age of uh, digital age, right? So right. to manage it, how to monetize it, or how to plan to eventually use it within um, their operation. So that would be data strategy consultation. So we could do that. Or for someone that's a bit more mature in terms of they have actually collected data, uh, we can help them with prepping the data. So data preparation to basically get ready for whatever models they need to build out based on that data. And then you have the next level after you have the data that's been prepared. You actually have the analysis that provides insights, reporting, business intelligence, or machine learning models that you build out. And then the next step would be actually taking the value of these machine learning models, which could be prediction most likely, into decision systems and applications for cool circle decision support. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking back in organizations that I've worked with over the years, and it, it strikes me as one of the big problems with organizations is they they actually collect a lot of data most of them but it's almost so much data that you don't you lose track of what's relevant in all the data that's collected would you agree with that absolutely um i think that stems from the fact that people or organizations truly are not well equipped in terms of understanding how they can truly leverage their data to actually help themselves their bottom line Well, as I said in the intro, you've obviously worked for and been an employee in a couple of fairly large companies. I don't know if Groupon is, Groupon used to be a startup company, but it's probably not all that small anymore. And Ernst & Young obviously is a very large company. So how did you make the decision to leave that world, the world of the paycheck, and decide to start your own company? Uh, what can I say, Doris? I would like to think that I'm a maverick. First of all, I'm a woman in science, right? <laughs> and I started up in academia and so was a researcher for a while and decided it was not good enough for me. I wanted to actually see how my research, the work I was doing, was tangibly making an effect on the bottom line. And so I moved into startups and uh, from startups to Fortune 500 companies, Ensign Young, where I worked, I had projects with several different clients. The work was intensely satisfying, but it still did not fulfill one integral need that I had, 
which is a flexibility really to solve problems using very innovative means that I want to come up with, as opposed to being boxed within guidelines. Well, I don't know if I have any colleagues or friends who have been in ENY, but I certainly know several who've been at PricewaterhouseCoopers and the old Accenture. And what they would tell me is that, frankly, you do the work that comes in the door. And sometimes that's great work and sometimes that's not very interesting stuff. You know, they are they are machines. I, and I, I, having worked for a big law firm, I kind of get that. You know, you don't necessarily get to do the interesting things that you really wanted to work on to make a difference, right? No, I agree. I, and I truly think really, and as an entrepreneur, you understand that in your business, you do what work comes in. Unless you get to a level where very few, uh, you mature to a level where you can then decide, pick and choose what you find interesting. Right, right. Unless you're a great rainmaker. But then what usually happens is you're stuck doing the rainmaking and other people get to work on the interesting stuff. You know, though, you, you probably did have other options. You probably could have gone into academia or back there. Maybe you could have worked with a small boutique firm. So starting your own company was was not the only option. Talk a little bit about how you decided that was the way to go. Hmm. Um, it was not easy, I will tell you that. Taking that first big step to quit your job and deciding <laughs> yeah. you to go register, so no more standard paycheck coming in. How are right. you it's quite scary, I have to admit, um, yeah. to do that. I think, but I was driven by the notion that if not now, when? You know, I think your story is really pretty similar to a lot of entrepreneurs. In some ways, a lot of the entrepreneurs I've spoken to basically say, I I didn't know what else to do. I I didn't really feel like I had a choice. It was It was the way I had to go. And I think that's probably more typical of entrepreneurs than people imagine. Agreed. And one of the things that I would, I probably, I probably talk on again and again is my lack of fear of making mistakes. Mm, that's interesting. Talk about I've that. Learned, I've learned earlier on in past life experiences about mistakes. They don't kill you. Um, <laughs> just, mistakes are part of life, right? Show me a person that has never made a mistake and I'll call you that person a liar. And yeah. so for me, the way I looked at this was, I am sure I will make mistakes. I'd rather make the, the mistakes now than later. I, I think you do have to have a certain fearlessness to, to be an entrepreneur because you realize pretty quickly that there's a lot you don't know. Even though you're good at certain things, there are other things you're not so very good at, right? Absolutely, yes. So what would you say the biggest differences are between running your own company and working for an employer. So obviously the paycheck, but but what else? Think about your day, a typical day at Ernst & Young and a typical day now. Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest differences? Well, you find that you're basically every position in the company, right? <laughs> right. You, you work as a business development person. You're drafting contracts sometimes. You're the attorney. You're the HR person. You're the mentor, 
you're actually a developer if you have to sit down and put some code you're everything you're every you're whatever you need to be to get uh the work done well and that's really hard because none of us are good at everything absolutely yes so what so, do you what do you do with some of the tasks or skills that you're not as good at or don't come as intuitively to you what do you do so i have i learned so again this is there's nothing that will make you more aware of what you're not good at than being an entrepreneur in your own business. You're very, <laughs> I sure, about, that. You're very sure about what you, you're great at, you're very sure about what you're okay at, and you're very sure about what you're, you're really bad at. But mo most importantly, you're also sure about what you enjoy and what you do not enjoy. Right? Mm. So for me, it's a matter I've learned to outsource. I have uh, an accounting person that helps me with my accounts. I will, uh, when I need to bring in extra help for consulting or contractors, I rely a lot on mentors and friends that recommend books that can help me on issues that I have. You know, I think one of the challenges is sometimes people don't recognize what they're not so good at. What's your internal compass in terms of telling you what, what you're good at or what you're not good at? If it takes me a long time to get it done. Yeah. Yes. If I feel unsure about the product of what I'm producing, I feel like I have an inborn resiliency that I, I feel I can figure everything out or most things out. But regardless of where I figure out, I may have a really difficult time going through that process because I truly just don't enjoy doing that sort of work. And so you learn to be in touch with how am I feeling? How it's, it's a constant gauging of what's going on at every given time throughout the day even, right? So it's, what am I working on right now? How do I feel about it? Do I feel as if I'm being productive? Do I want to continue? Do I want to switch on another task? Again, with a million different things that you have fingers in and need to get accomplished, you want to make sure that whatever you're working on at that any given moment, you're fully... Um, immensely and being very productive with. Mm, I would agree with that. Your time is your most valuable resource when mm. you work for yourself. For me, it's interesting. It's it's the things that I put off doing. I just put them uh, off and put them off. And, I, you know, I might pull up articles about it and things to read. And I find, and at that point, I kind of go, yeah, you might need some help here. That's my, that's one of my barometers. Now, that's not to say that's always the case. Sometimes just hard decisions, it's easy to put those off. And sometimes as a business owner, you have to be the one to do. <laughs> you can't outsource some of those hard decisions. So there's a fine line there, I guess. Yes, you're right. So you started out on your own. How did you find your first clients and how do you keep finding clients? Ah. Uh. So that is a constant struggle, um, and I, I would like to say we're getting better at it, but there's still a big room for improvement. So my first client was through someone I knew, a network. It's all about networks, folks. Your network is your network. That scene is very true, especially as an entrepreneur. So that was my first uh, client through a network, someone that connected me, and we did some good work, and then they referred me to some more. But now we are endeavoring in doing a bit more marketing, right? Just trying to give reach a bigger audience. 
so it's really twofold, right? So marketing uh, out to stratosphere that be where it's LinkedIn or all the other social media outlets, as well as bearing down on those networks. So whether you're attending peer uh, events or conferences, meetings, and being active within the industry that your company is a part of. Well, I, I always, once I've learned about an entrepreneur and their business, I always am on the lookout for them. So help me help you. What are your ideal clients? Who? What do they look like? What do they do? What are they looking for? All right. So my ideal clients are medium, small business enterprises. There are folks that re- recognize that they need to start enacting some digital innovation within their company. They need maybe handholding in terms of coming up with a data strategy to get one off the ground. Whether they have data or not, they need some sort of action plan. It could be a client that has data and need, needs help, right? In terms of how do I actually turn this data and make it work for me? How do mm. I bring extra uh, extraneous revenue from this data? Is there some value in it beyond me just collecting stacks and stacks of data? What about the data management aspect? How do I manage the data that I currently have? Or it could even be the level where they do have resources in-house that uh, are capable, but they need help. They need someone that's a bit more experienced, right, to come lead a particular project or just add resources to complete a big project that they have going on and have that complete more successfully faster. Tell me a little bit more about one of the coolest projects you've worked on or currently are working on. I have to say we have a, a project going on called Smart NetUps. It's actually we're a client of the Department of Energy, so I'm very, very excited about it. It's called Smart NetUps. And the idea is about analyzing data from networks. So if you understand that a network really is a highway where devices communicate between each other, right? It could be any sort of network, but really it's a foundation by which, a protocol by which devices communicate to each other or humans communicate to devices. So there is some underlying traffic, if you will, network traffic that we want to collect and analyze. That gives us a sense of what's going on within the network, who's talking to what, Who's talking to whom, in what locations, at what times, in what capacities. And it gives you a sense of this is what's going on within my organization. It's a true underlying measure of how people are communicating and things are getting done within your organization. So mm. this platform basically analyzes the data, different sources of that, to give you that monitoring at a very high granularity of what's going on. It can also help you predict when things are going to get down. Right. So it has some predicts and help you diagnose what the issues are and maybe even point out some security flaws and abnormalities that are occurring within the communication of your network. You know, one of the things that occurred to me is that as you look at companies streams of data or help them maybe create new data streams, your work probably really starts to touch up on things like data security, right? How do you deal with those kinds of issues? Do you have a colleague that you you work with when you're dealing, or is that something your firm also will help companies address? So we we do do data security, but we are focused more in terms of 
privacy issues, right? So mm -hmm. the security aspect comes with regards to uh, finding out what is what is the policy, first of all, on your, in your organization regarding assets and basically identifying when these uh, policies are broken, right? So if someone knows, if you know right away, say a system admin or network admin can tell when traffic from some authorized IP address, say somewhere in some other continent, another country is hitting a computer and that's unusual. Yeah, that is interesting. Or imagine that we can notice that on Christmas Day, all of a sudden your throughput, there's a lot of movements of information, a lot of usage in terms of the power uh, that's going on within your, uh, your organization. That's also a red flag. You want to go and check, like, this is Christmas. Most people are off. What's, uh, what's going on here? Interesting. So you've talked a little bit about the clients that you're looking for. I can tell you from my own personal experience that sorting out the clients that I can't really help the best or that I find less rewarding to work with can save a lot of time because I know in the past I spent a lot of time talking to potential clients who, frankly, they weren't a good fit. So they, it wasn't very productive. Have you profiled out some of the clients or what kind of clients you might steer away from or are the ones that you feel like you just can't help even though they might be interested initially? Um, unfortunately, we're still in that process. Uh, I have <laughs> spent a lot of time as well. There are some clients that are just not ready. They're yeah, elab elaborate on that. That's That's pretty <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Their company uh, motto might say, we are digitized, uh, innovative tech and getting on the data and leveraging their data. But when you actually talk to the employees, the people that actually work within it, you realize that they're very far off from that. Yes. And, uh, and so there is this sort of uh, stringing that goes on where you're trying to help this client in terms of educating them of the methods and things that you can do and ways that you can start and you put a lot of energy and effort into this mm -hmm. and you realize several months maybe years even down the line that the statement oh we don't have a budget for this however the company line is this is very important to us but they never account for a budget to actually address the issues right or maybe there's somebody in the company who's individually very interested but he or she really isn't able to marshal the support of whoever the decision maker is in the company to actually give the green light. So finding the decision, the real decision maker, I've found at least as a solopreneur and a small consultancy owner myself, it's really tough sometimes. It is, yes. So I have to ask you, what's the worst project you've ever worked on? And again, you don't, you don't have to name any names and you can change the facts and circumstances to protect whoever this is and in case it's a potential future client again. So this was a project um, that for, for a corporation that's found several different locations. There, there was not a lot of guidance in terms of direction, but the idea was this, do this, produce this. And mm -hmm. about halfway through the project, you realize that a different department was solving exactly the same sort of problem. Oh, no. Yes. 
and it, it became a struggle of politics like well our solution is better because so not because it was truly better but more of uh, claiming the idea that it was my team that provided the solution if you will well they have promotions at stake you're just an outside <laughs> contractor right so exactly all i care about is really providing the best solution given the problem affected the, the, the project project quite significant, significantly, I'd say, unfortunately. The, that sounds like a very disappointing kind of learning. I, I think particularly with consulting projects, it is a slippery, slippery thing sometimes. Oftentimes, even in mid-sized companies, left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And some projects, people just spend money, but they're not clear about what they want. And other times, it's clear they need it, they need it desperately, and yet they don't spend the money or make it a priority. It's just, uh, it's kind of, uh, I, I wish I had all the answers, but I, I found myself being very frustrated many times. Yes, I, I completely agree. You named all the things that are really at issue with having a small consultancy startup. One of the things that we uh, try to do, especially with data, is at least try to address the fact, the visibility aspect of things, right? So, the which? so if we're pulling data to do some sort of analysis with the project, our focus, maybe not initially, but our idea, our plan is to basically pulling data from all different departments. That way, if you're looking at insights, you can actually tie it with each different department and what they are comfortable with. For example, if you're pulling operations data, operations, imagine that it was uh, customer reviews. And mm -hmm. you can analyze that and tie that in with financial data. So those in finance can actually look at the spreadsheet and actually have that tied in with complaints and or reviews from customers. And those from operations can actually see that this is the amount of time that's being spent on a particular issue and send that that issue can also tie down to development on a feature and vice versa. So there's a visibility, all this data all into one. It's a complex data form, but you can slice and dice it in different ways that could help the person that's looking at it understand it because this is a data they're comfortable looking at, but get a bigger picture as to what's going on, how does this affect the other departments. Very interesting. Mechie, I need to ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second because we need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back, folks, with Mechie Kengla talking about her company, Data Products. You're listening to Doris Nagel and the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We've been chatting with Mechie Kengla, who's our guest on the show this week, to share the story of how she's built her business called Data Products. You know, Mechie, before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges of selling services, consulting services to companies. And, you know, without focusing too much on the negatives, because I think we talked about some of the challenges, I'd like to kind of switch it away from client challenges, but just talk generally about developing your business. What do you find is the best part about having your own business? Absolutely, I would say the biggest, uh, the best part for me is the freedom. The freedom to pursue 
the creative solutions that I want to some of the challenges that I encounter. I, and the, the luxury of being flexible and trying out new ways and different approaches, right? Whatever issues that come along the way. And what do you think's been the hardest thing about having your own business? The uncertainty. It's beyond, it's beyond the paycheck. You have the paycheck, but it's more so. It's the fact that not just your livelihood, but the livelihood of your employees. Mm. You have employees, you want to ensure that you have you can pay them, right? They have families. That is a huge responsibility. Yeah, it is. So what are some of the significant roadblocks you've faced so far in building your company? Well, there's been a couple, but I would say for me, the one that I identify most with is being a woman in tech. I, I find I come up against, I feel like I keep hitting a wall with that one. And a minority to boot. We can talk about all the issues and uh, the discrimination, if you will, for being a woman in tech and how people perceive you. But I, I've come across that quite a bit. And you just learn to throw with the punches and smile through it. It's a challenge that, a handicap that I have, sort of, if you will, in the business space. And I just have to work within those lines. So how how do you do that? I mean, what advice would you give to other women in tech entrepreneurs? Because there are lots of us. And yet the statistics, somebody gave me a statistic on one of my previous shows that 2% of venture capital goes to women owned businesses, which I, I don't I don't even know. I don't even know what to do with that number, if that's even close to being accurate, because my my response is what what year is this um and yet <laughs> and and yet i consistently hear from women entrepreneurs some of the same kinds of things so what advice would you give to other women entrepreneurs to help them through some of those some uh, of those roadblocks unfortunately funding is a crucial part of growing one's business and like you rightly pointed out the funding rate for women entrepreneurs in tech, it's, uh, it's abysmal. It's abysmal. With the roadblocks, I think in terms of you just rely on yourself. Join women uh, groups, support groups. Those are the best I found. There's not one that I can think of immediately, but being with a group of women that support each other, like a mastermind that push each other to go after things, it helps significantly. There's a the sisterhood of support, if you will. And, yeah. and you and when it, what everything else fails, you you come back to yourself. You started this out because of a innate fate and belief that you have for your, within yourself, right? And this right. belief it's not because someone said something or has any power to change anything. If you cannot get funding from one means, come back, reevaluate, bootstrap. You find a way, but don't give up. Well, we haven't talked about funding. So is your business self-funded or have you been through some of the more traditional path of looking for funding? I mean, how have you gone about that? So it's been self-funded up to now, but we are getting to the process of actually going after some funding um, at the end of this year and the next couple of several months. So we are basically gearing up for that, yes. If I may ask, what kind of funding are you thinking about? Are you looking at promissory notes or crowdfunding or 
pitch competitions or some combination of all of those things and others? Combination, uh, but what we're looking for funding for particularly is for our smart NetOps platform or product, which we want, we're thinking of, we're planning on spinning in into its own company because we've heard such great things about it already. And we're currently in the using test case uh, stage right now. We're testing that with some other clients. And we decided that it makes sense to actually spin it out to his own company, and we're looking for funding for that. With regards to the sort of funding that we're going after, primarily we'll be looking at angel investors as well as some venture capitalists as well. Interesting. Well, talk a little bit more about SmartNet. That sounds very interesting. How did that come about? What is it? And what do you see as its potential? So what it came about actually was through an interaction with the DOE, the Department of U.S. Department of Energy. I'm not sure if you're you're aware of it. Maybe you you probably are. But there is this grant called the SBIR, which stands for Small Business Innovation Research Grant. And if you're not aware of it, go find out more about it. It's a great source of funding for small businesses. And basically, I think it's demanded by Congress, I think in the 80s, about 3% of the budget of all agencies go towards that grant. So mm, interesting. Yeah, so we're talking about the Department of Energy, we're talking about the Department of Defense, we're talking about uh, national health, all agencies really that, uh, the, I think there are 11 major agencies in the U.S., about 3% of their budget was slated by Congress to go towards this grant. And the idea really is to help businesses, right, by becoming more, you know, small businesses innovate because when small businesses win, the economy wins. That uh, is for sure. The process to get it is quite competitive, I'd say. You have thousands and thousands of applications coming in for every uh, release of the grant and maybe only about four candidates get in. So we were very lucky in being one of those that got the funding and that was the seed stage that basically finance our seed stage of uh, development. Fantastic. Congratulations. Tell me a little bit more about what this is and what it does. So SmartNetOps is an intelligent um, network monitoring platform, right? I think I was talking about it a little bit earlier where I mentioned that it's basically a way to monitor your organization in terms of who's talking to what or who's talking to whom computer man from what location at what time. So you basically you have a granular view of what's going on within your organization from a network perspective at any given time. So it has a monitoring module. It also has a performance and diagnostics module, which basically helps you in terms of how is your network functioning. For a small person in, uh, in the home office, that probably doesn't need money, this sort of analysis. But if you would imagine if your uh, bandwidth, your download speeds or your upload speeds are not coming up to par, right? SmartNetOps will be able to analyze the data and tell you, you have a bottleneck here. This is the sort of things that you need to do to basically improve the speeds or whatever metrics of the network so that it meets its full service level agreements that you signed with your provider. Well, that would certainly be nice to have another source of revenue you know, one of the things that a lot of service providers like your company, like mine, you know, we're told you need to productize your services, look for products to help 
with cash flow. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done. So kudos to you. Thanks. Yes. I would add, I'd like to add, I'm, I can go on and on about smart night ops. One of the things <laughs> I'd like to add is that what's really cool about this is it's focused on networks that see a lot of data. So think of research facilities, think of data centers, right? Where it's constantly motion. Think of financial institutions that is a lot of trading going on. Think of Hospitals, imagine a very modern age hospitals where you have equipment and devices with IoT, some being monitored and that communicate with each other and doctors as well. Sorry to interrupt you, IoT, Internet of Things, right? Yes, that's right. Wow, that's really exciting and sounds like a very exciting phase for your business. So where do you want to be in five years? What would data products look like? or the, the Medici Kengla empire, <laughs> you know, the family of companies, what would that look like five years from now? Well, I envision it being self-sufficient, right? So in terms of not having to work so hard to get clients, right? Being a recognizable and more trusted name where you have people coming to you because they understand that you can provide them with the help and solutions that they need to get to wherever they need to go. I envision it being a place where people can come to learn, whether they're new graduates basically wanting training to get their fit wet, or companies trying to endeavor in terms of the meeting of data and modern technology, how to understand basically how they can leverage that or become better prepared to move forward. Interesting. Are there things that you can do or that you would like to be able to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Oh, absolutely. I envision, for example, one of the things I have in the works, but it's probably not going to get done, not this year, perhaps later, is a data resource center, data resource and learning center. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my uh, big tenets, what I believe in is every company, regardless of what service you provide, regardless of what vertical you're in, in order to thrive, you must be a data company. Elaborate on that a little bit. Walmart, for example, I always target. They are data companies that just happen to sell convenience items. Well, and why do you say that? Because without any information that they collect, without the intelligence that they get from the data, they would not be able to provide you with, uh, they would not be able to run effectively. They would not be able to know that, for example, this is what people prefer to buy. Maybe on this days they would buy these things in uh, in the basket. So if you're buying eggs, you're more likely to buy bread with that, or, or onions, or cheese. And so have that in structurally arranged in the store in a way that is convenient for the customers, right? If you're a service company, you know that your clients, your customers are always first. You need to learn about them. And by learning about them, all translates to collecting data. If Mm. you're a manufacturing company, the items that you produce, the reviews that you get back, the feedback that you get, the method of which you use to manufacture the processes, that's all, you have data that you collect around it to use So you are really to innovate in this age of digital connection where everything is becoming more automated. To thrive, you need to be a data company first that happens to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think 
Amazon, for example, has really changed the bar for a lot of brick and mortar stores and online stores too, because it's pretty clear that they really have upped the bar in terms of customer expectations of how you provide products and when and the tracking of it and all of that kind of thing has just changed enormously, I think. It's it's ridiculous. So they don't only track the sales of their own product, they track the sales of other resellers that sell on their platform, make decisions about how best to run their business. Well, it does lead to an interesting kind of digression, which is that some of these companies, the data that they collect is becoming useful in its own right as a product in and of itself. And, you know, I'm I'm probably most familiar with the healthcare world, but obviously if you have collected a lot of healthcare data on people, and I'm not talking about personally identifiable data, that's, you know, that's protected by HIPAA, but, but even things like, you know, one company I worked with, they had heart monitors. And so they collected a whole database of demographic data. And actually that data had value in and of itself because it allowed them to do some predictive kinds of things to say, for example, that I'm just making this up, but, you know, women over 65 who were Asian were more likely to have coronary irregularities in their heartbeats or, you know, I mean, I'm just talking about those kinds of things that suddenly having access to all that data and sort of re-slicing it a different way created a product that was very valuable for them. You're absolutely right. It does create a very, some insights are astounding. But like you mentioned, on the flip side, there is an ethics part that comes into it as well, right? Imagine the insurance uh, company that takes this information and then charges people that fall within a particular category a different rate because of some predictions of Mm. uh, the sort of illnesses that they're predisposed to. We're definitely into moving into a very brave new world. So, Mechie, if you decide someday you're tired of what you're doing or maybe your business is wildly successful and it kind of runs on its own, what other kinds of things could you envision getting involved in? Or is there a, a passion, a hobby, something that you wish you had more time to spend on? Oh, there are lots of passions, but I think one of the ones that I would love to spend time on is in teaching. There is a there is a joy I find from teaching that I cannot explain. It's not about telling really telling someone what to think, but teaching them how to think, how to question, how to push, and realizing when you see in their eyes the curiosity and the question and the pushback, the discussion that comes through, is quite fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Having been an adjunct professor for a couple of semesters, I totally agree with you. It, it's very, very rewarding. And I, I can see why that would be a passion for you. I think you're very good at explaining things and very articulate, even complex concepts, I can tell. So I'm sure, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're quite a good teacher. So a couple of last questions. We're almost out of time. When you're talking with somebody who's articulate and passionate about what they do and working on interesting things, the time just flies. You know, if you 
we're looking back at your your younger self or maybe a, a woman who's starting out with her own business what what advice would you give her i i would advise them to get more mentors talk to as many people as possible and while they get advice that doesn't mean that they should listen to it <laughs> it's, it's all about collecting information and from which you make the best decision for you because you should realize that whatever advice is given to you is given from perspective from where they're standing from within their shoes there is this famous quote about going to to buy a car it's a car dealership the salesperson doesn't sell you the car that is for you they sell you the car within the parameters you've given them from where they're standing. Mm. Take all the information, take lots and lots of information, but make decisions for yourself. Well, and it sounds like you would advise them to be a little fearless because that's part of what it takes to be successful, right? Well, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> you know, it's funny, um, you know, we're both based here in Chicago in the Midwest and they say that Midwesterners in general being sort of conservative and coming from our agricultural roots, that we're probably more afraid of failing here in the Midwest than on the coast, where I'm told, at least in Silicon Valley, telling people that you failed is actually kind of a badge of honor. And I'm, I'm not sure I would say that about the Midwest, at least not yet. So I make a distinction between failing and making a mistake. Make okay. lots of mistakes. That doesn't mean you failed. Right. I'll borrow a saying from one of my favorite writers, Neil Gaiman, the author of uh, American Gods. He has a quote that I regularly uh, turn to. He goes, make new mistakes, make glorious, amazing mistakes. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Don't worry. That isn't good enough for perfect. Mm. His point is that if you're making mistakes, you're at least challenging yourself, changing the world, doing something. Right. Fantastic advice. I'm glad you shared that. I'll, I'll, I'll keep that quote in mind. Maybe look for it and post it up on the wall myself. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You're making mistakes. You're leaving. You're changing. You're growing. So the final question really is if people are interested in learning more about data products or maybe they just want to connect with you and you know, just reach out to you on a personal basis or some some mentoring of their own, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? They can uh, reach out to me directly. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com backslash IN, Mechikengla. You can reach me there. Or you, you, might, can... you might want to spell your name just because oh, yeah. if they're looking on LinkedIn, they might not, it might not be entirely easy to find you at first. That's right. Um, M-E-C-H-I-E is the first name. N is Nancy, K-E-N-G-L-A. Okay. And okay. does your company have a website and, a, and or a phone number or email? Yes. So uh, website, data products, D-A-T-A-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S dot I-O. And an email, contact at data products dot I-O. Great. Matty, thank you so much for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and listening to some of the aspects of your story of how you started and grew your business. So thank you once again for being on the show. 
Thank you so much, Darius, for having me. I had a blast and I would love to come back again sometime. I'll pick you up on that. All right. <laughs> so thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks again to Mechi Kengloff, the founder of Data Products LLC, for being our guest today. I hope you listeners enjoyed hearing about her story as much as I did. And if you're interested in listening to an on-demand recording podcast of today's show, Along with other free information and resources for entrepreneurs, you can go to my show page for the Savvy Entrepreneur show page, that is, at lakesradio.org, or my law and consulting website, which is www.globalocityservicesplural.com. Be sure to join us for our show next Saturday. We'll have another great guest. Be sure not to miss it. And until then, I'm Doris Nagel. Wishing you happy entrepreneuring.